What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Damn Good Day Show. This is Ian Lenhart coming at you from Miami, Florida to let you know that it is a damn, an absolutely damn good day to have a damn good day. And I just got back from Tampa, Florida, and it was amazing, specifically because I connected with so many awesome, like-minded individuals. And what was really cool is that we had sort of a mini mastermind. Now, when you think of mastermind, you think drop three to 5K, go out to Tulum or Cabo and hang out with a bunch of super smart people for four days. That is a mastermind, but these little mini masterminds are something that you should implement today. And the idea is to create a safe space where you can talk with like-minded people about all sorts of things. Like for example, we spoke about where we are currently in our careers, what have been the biggest updates, how can everyone else help, people bounce ideas back and forth, and it was tremendous when you just have everyone's attention. It's something that's very rare in today's society to just have everybody's attention, helping each other out, move the ball over the goal line. But more than that, something I really enjoyed about it was it created a safe space to talk about controversial subjects, right? We live in a world where there's some things you can and some things you can't talk about. I mean, you can talk about everything, but the reality is that some people are uncomfortable talking about some things. And for this, it was really cool because I was able to just surround myself with like-minded, great people and talk about subjects that are very controversial and it was very liberating to be able to just hear different opinions and approaches it's almost like you know training your sword at trying to become a good sword fighter well i wasn't very well versed in many of these topics so just even talking about them was a little bit strange right i know i'm like what are these topics you got to join the small group if you're gonna get it but the point is is use this example as a time for you to start your own mastermind this could change everything in your life masterminds allow you to grow get new insight and just overall help each other win and when you combine camaraderie with ambition and good vibes man you're a recipe for success now i'm super excited for today's episode honestly it's one of the my favorite podcasts we've ever done just because to be quite frankly i i just didn't really expect tom nash to be as freaking cool as tom nash is Tom Nash is a absolute legend. He was diagnosed with a really terrible, absolutely awful disease at 19 years old. I can't really say it right, and that's how you know it's extra terrible. It's called meningococcal septicemia. Basically, he goes into a coma two and a half weeks later, is told he has to have his legs cut off. Shortly after, they tell him he has to have his arms cut off. So he's a quadruple amputee facing this life-threatening illness that puts him into the hospital for 18 months. And then he has to learn to, you know, go about life differently. And I was so absolutely amazed and astonished. And quite frankly, I was almost embarrassed that I was amazed and astonished because when I met Tom, Tom just lives his life. He keeps it real. He has found ways to create an amazing life for himself. He's a one of the greatest DJs in Australia. He's called DJ Hooky. This dude's got straight hooks for arms and he's DJing and he's spinning and he's having a damn good time. I loved speaking with Tom because he's just a great example of overcoming adversity, of seeing the bright side of things and just laughing at what you can and taking life as it comes at you. One time in this podcast, Tom says that sometimes he looks in the mirror and he just laughs at himself. And I really just appreciate his outlook and his way of looking at things. I think it's going to help a lot with what you're going through and just your outlook on life. This is just an amazing podcast. On this episode, we discussed overcoming adversity, reprogramming your brain to 
think differently. Why people think the way they do. This was this was awesome. I love this topic. And really just so much more that you're going to have to listen to this podcast. As always, you can watch this episode live on YouTube. Now, without further ado, episode 126 with the man, the myth, the legend, DJ Hookie, aka Tom Nash. It's actually the other way around, but let's jump into it. We're live. Tom Nash, aka DJ Hookie, professors in the building. What's up, man? How you doing? Good to see you, and thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it too. And you're a legend. You're an eternal optimist, or so you show and appear, and <laughs> and you're out here inspiring the world. The fact that you're here right now with us, sharing some time, man, it means a lot. And you're out in Australia. Is it Sydney? Yes, I am in Sydney. Yeah, uh, sunny Sydney. It's actually the second or third uh, day of spring here, and it kind of switches over in this country. Like it's like you I mean it's it's winter one night, and then literally at midnight it just starts to get warm again. That's how we do things. What's the most effed up thing you've seen in Australia in terms of the wildlife? In terms of the wildlife, I mean, it's a bit of a misnomer that uh, we experience a lot of wildlife in Australia, kangaroos, et cetera. We, we typically have to go to zoos just like any tourist would to see that kind of stuff. Uh, unless you live in a rural area, they're not too common. But one of the things that I really hate uh, being an arachnophobe myself is that we have a hell of a lot of what are called huntsman spiders. And huntsman spiders, while being strictly innocuous, are absolutely massive. And so they range from the size of, I'd say, like a, a cup of coffee to a dinner plate. And these can be found in your house from spring till the end of autumn or fall, as you call it, uh, all year round, uh, pretty common, even in urban areas. I, I live a couple of kilometers from the CBD of Sydney and we get them all the time. Are they poisonous or anything? No, they're not poisonous. Um, they apparently they do hurt you if they bite you. I've never been bitten by one. I'd love to see one of them bite my prosthetic arm. That'd that'd give it a shock. Yeah. Uh, but um, in in reality, no, I've never been bitten by one. But you, you just don't, it's not the kind of thing you want on your wall, right? You don't want to wake up in the morning and see the, a spider the size of a dinner plate. But that's what we get. The, the worst ones, like if you're in the bathroom and you like you know you look down, you're like, what's going on there? Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't be having it. I wouldn't be having it. Here it is. Man, it, it, it's it's really exciting. First of all, I saw in one of your other interviews that you're a gin fan. Is that true? I am a gin fan. Yeah, that's right. All right. So this is the best gin ever. It's called... Oh, amazing. It's called Mulholland Gin. And uh, so I uh, this is based in Santa Monica, LA area. Mm-hmm. But once my friends discovered it, way better than Hendrix. I know that's really popular around here. But it's got this really cucumber taste to it. And it's just absolutely amazing. My favorite cocktail is called an East Side cocktail. Have you ever had? No, I've never had an East Side. What's that? It's like, uh, I believe it's two ounces of gin, an ounce of simple sugar, no, an ounce of lime juice, three parts simple sugar, then metalled cucumber and mint. Shake that bad boy up. Oh my gosh. It'll change your life. Uh, We're recording this. uh, So I don't need to go and Google the recipe to that, right? I can just watch this back and then give it a try myself. It's done. Clip it, snip it. Here we are. Is is that the, uh, is that like one of these sort of, we have a lot of these in Sydney. They're kind of like inner city hipster uh, distillers. I guess you could probably say that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We have so many of those. I mean, because gin's blown up over the past five years 
And, you know, you can throw a packet of cigarettes and hit a gin distil- distillery here in Sydney. All the other ones, though, in the U.S. suck. I mean, I, I ordered this online right. to Miami. Like, I get, like, four or five of them at a time. And I don't even drink that much, but I just like knowing that I have it because it's a great gift when you can give it to someone and you go to someone's house and you always yeah, show up with yeah. something, you know what I mean? I recently learned how to make uh, an aviation, which has been a fantastic cocktail, and that's two parts gin uh, well, let's say two ounces gin, one ounce, oh, sorry, half an ounce of lemon juice. So already it seems like it's up your alley. And then a quarter in, uh, ounce each of uh, creme de violette and maraschino cherry liqueur. Mm. Um, and you can sh- uh, shake it or stir it, but I, I tried both and I tend to prefer the, uh, I know you're supposed to shake citrus-based cocktails more, more than anything, but um, I actually prefer the stir version. Nice. Um, and served over ice with maraschino cherry. And it sort of goes with the creme de violette, it kind of goes like a, a very light mauve color. And so while being a fantastic drink, it's also uh, one that impresses people when you serve it at your house as well. I love it. Write that down mm. for everyone listening. What are you smoking? <laughs> CBD, weed? No, no, I don't. No, I don't do weed. This is just a jewel. Oh, it's just a jewel. Oh, okay. Can we pull focus on that? No, we uh- can't. Yeah. Need to upgrade my camera setup. Nice. Um, yeah, but they're not legal here in Australia. We can't import Jewel here. Interesting. There's a ban. I've been. I. I. You know. I. I smoked cigarettes for 20 years, and the only thing that ever got me off cigarettes was uh, vaping. Wow. Awesome. I've actually heard yeah. that a few times. Do you smoke mm. cigars? I don't know. I think I should. I feel I feel like it would suit my aesthetic, but I don't actually. You, you do have a pretty gangster aesthetic going on. <laughs> yeah, so it's got, I don't know some pirate thing. I should be you know drinking rum and have a cigar or maybe whiskey or something like that. But you know I prefer a jewel and a martini any day. I guess it's done now, Tom. Yeah. Man, I mean, I, it's interesting because like when I watch your shows and I watch your content and I check out your stuff, you're rocking, you're rolling. You're, you have a smile on your face. Obviously, every day is in a smiley day, but you've you've come far and maybe your new normal is your new normal. But for people that look at you, they just say, oh, my gosh, an admiration for your personality and your perseverance and just your your G status. You know, you keep it real. You're you've been through a lot. You've went through adversity, but it seems to have really shaped you into it. A fantastic, phenomenal person. So uh, I just want to oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I just want to take it back a little bit. Um, to the OG. I mean, you tell your story a million times, I'm sure, but it's an inspiring one. So could you kind of break us down to, you know, Tom Nash, 15 year old Tom Nash and and sort of the progression? Mm. Yeah, I can give you sort of the the abridged version, uh, which is um, quite simply, I was a quite regular, you know, middle class Australian kid, Uh, actually grew up in America. I was I grew up in Dallas. Um, came here when I was about 10 or so. Nice. Um, but uh, yeah, neither neither here nor there. But um, but anyway, yeah, so I was uh, I'd finished high school and uh, I was I went to study psychology at uh, the University of Sydney here. And I also, also used to be a musician. I was a guitarist and a singer and stuff like that. And I just kind of, I didn't do that professionally in any capacity. It was more just a an outlet, I guess, a creative outlet which is something that I've always found that I needed, not not for any vocational pursuit, but just to be able to have some sort of creative outlet, whether it be writing or whether it be music or anything like that. Um, and so I was doing it in um, in a recreational capacity. 
<clears throat> when I was sort of 18, 19. And then uh, I got sick one, one day at uni. It felt like I had a really bad flu and ended up going home and missing all my lectures and which I didn't really care about, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Back then, you know, when you're a 19 year old boy, you're like, oh, damn, I've got to miss a lecture or two. Um, <laughs> so I, I went home and I had a really terrible night. I, I felt like I had a really bad flu, like one of those ones that would end up killing you. Um, and it turned out I had not something not too dissimilar that would have killed me if I hadn't picked up on it quicker. And that was meningococcal disease. And meningococcal disease is a very rare disease, which is like, it acts like a blood poisoning. So it causes septicemia, at least the strain that I had causes septicemia. And if you don't catch it quick enough, uh, it kills you. And we're, and we're talking about once you're in an advanced stage, um, of acute illness, you've got hours. And uh, so obviously, you know, I was a 19 year old boy and nothing can kill 19 year old boys. So I thought, ah, it's, you know, it's fine. I'll, I'll go to a doctor maybe tomorrow or the next day. And I ended up calling my stepsister and, and she came right over and took one look at me and said, you're not going to a doctor, you're going to hospital. Because at this point I had a purple rash all over my face and my body had swollen up. And so she thought there was something serious, seriously wrong and she was right. And so that was when I, I was, uh, she, she drove me up to a local hospital who then immediately transferred me to a larger hospital. And within hours, I was induced into a coma that lasted for two and a half weeks, uh, during which time I'd been put on life support. And then uh, when I began to wake up from the coma, which by the way, is nothing like it appears in movies and TV. Usually when people wake up from comas in movies or TV, it's sort of instantaneous and then they look around the room. And when you actually wake up from a coma, or at least in my experience, it's a very gradual uh, sensation. So it happens over a few days and you sort of gradually become conscious. Um, and there's no real moment where you remember being fully lucid. Did you dream um, during that really time? Yeah, you do dream during that time. And disappointingly, it's very much like dreaming and not much like anything else. You're like you would think that it would be some sort of weird, deep, uh, introspective dream. And it's it's totally not. It's just it's just like a really long dream. Um, and if you have the kind of fucked up dreams that I do, it's a very uh, surreal experience. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and then I, I was out of the coma eventually. And then uh, little did I know that I was going to spend the next 18 months in hospital uh, trying to battle meningococcal. And the first part of it was being on life support and actually trying to get rid of the septicemia that had poisoned my bloodstream. And part of that comes with amputating limbs because they've destroyed tissue. And so I had both of my legs amputated below the knee. And then about a couple of weeks later, both of my arms amputated at the elbow. And there were a whole series of other problems that I had heart attacks and liver failure and kidney failure and all this shit. But I mean, it like the fucked up thing is that that's not even the most interesting part of this story. <laughs> you just got a dumpster um, full of shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, the, that's the, in the bibliography, you can read about that later. Um, but then I spent a, a year of that 18 months was spent in rehabilitation hospital, which is where they uh, give you prosthetic limbs and basically say, well, start to learn to walk again or start to learn to use arms again, um, learn to pick up a cup, basically relearn everything that you had cultivated 
up until that point in your life. Um, but the interesting thing about relearning everything that you've cultivated isn't the process of actually doing it, but you have to learn different ways of doing things. And I guess the the, the point that I made in my uh, recent TED talk was that uh, I use this analogously, which was that when learning how to walk up a step, I I learned after a while that walking up a step wasn't going to be the same as the way that I always did it. Because I don't have ankle movement, I couldn't walk up a step uh, forwards like I normally did. And it sort of dawned on me that I had to walk up sideways and use my hip joint as the joint that elevated me up to the next level, not my ankle. And although that seems really simple now that I explain it, it wasn't obvious when I was first trying to tackle the problem. And so there are a lot of problems that I had to overcome by thinking about them in a completely different fashion. And what I didn't know was happening then was I was actually rewiring my brain to tackle problems from a different angle completely and not just in the physicality of my life. And so in a way that that made me a completely different person, a different problem solver. And uh, it just changed my complete, uh, completely changed my perspective on life, I guess, to that extent. When you go to that phase and you wake up from a coma and you're this healthy, you know, crushing it, 19 year old savage, like you mentioned, nothing in the world can stop you. And you go through this like harsh realization that, hey, life's going to be different from now on. What are some of like, what are those emotions? Did it happen for years? Did you face? How did you overcome or, or at least get to a point where you're like, hey, I think I got this? Uh, I don't think there would be a time that I remember switching over to that mode of thought. I think it's something that happens gradually. And I realized that, I mean, looking back upon it, I did experience bouts of what people describe as depression. Uh, even though I didn't feel like I was depressed at the time. Um, but having a better understanding of, of that condition now, I guess retrospectively I would, I would say that I did have bouts of that, but they were mainly attributed to being in physical pain. Um, and a lot of the challenges that I had to overcome, like learning how to walk again and become independent, were prohibited by the physical pain that I was experiencing. And so it was a barrier that it, I didn't know I was trying to break through. Uh, and so a lot of it is more just confusion and not having a roadmap to the future. And I feel like that is emblematic of a lot of the things that people fear in life. It's, it's fear of the un, unknown, uh, not having a roadmap in front of you. Maybe you're embarking upon something that is untested ground or that you have no blueprint for or something like that. There's nobody that has done what you're planning on doing, at least not exactly. And therefore you, you can't see the steps involved or exactly what the barriers are. And so it becomes kind of confusing. And then within the confusion, you uh, get upset or you experience fear or um, it affects your subjective well-being. I guess, uh, with respects to that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I experienced that on a very micro level. I had some issues with my eyes, some stomach stuff. I had a tumor in my leg and um, just some stuff mm. that was causing pain. And like you mentioned, I mean, nearly not, not on the level. That doesn't sound very micro, by the way. I, oh, I, I guess you always, people tend to compare people to other people. And, and that's when you're in pain, though, your pain. Oh, is I don't think pain. that's, I don't think that's a useful thing to do because the only thing that you can compare ailments are, are versus your own life. I mean, one, one of the things that I, that I, that really displeases me about the way that some people perceive my condition is that 
they'll say, oh, I could never go through what you'd gone through because it makes my problems look like nothing. And th there's two erroneous things that are going on there. One is that you're discounting your own problems, which you should never do, uh, because that's crucial to uh, increasing your subjective well-being, making you feel better and be able to uh, overcome those things. And the other is um, comparing yourself to others. I mean, what, what, what's the point of that? I mean, sure, you can say that there are uh, people far worse off than yourself, but you can equally say there are people that are better off than yourself. Are you meant to feel bad about that? Well, I don't think so. And I don't think you're meant to feel good because other people are worse off. You know, like all of the problems that you have, uh, you know, by their very nature, instinctually just yours, they're completely subjective. And the way that you deal with them is really important in the way that you might take into account what others go through and, and you can learn from their processes, but don't make yourself feel better or worse just because someone is worse off or better off, you know? Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I, I remember when you don't know what it is, right? You don't know what the problem is. It's unknown. You're scared because you start playing the what if game, which is just an endless dark hole of you just causing pain to yourself, which is interesting. I've been really into meditation recently because of the fact that if you can control your brain, you can cause a lot of unneeded pain. But I remember when I finally had some level of answers, your brain just calms down. Like if you know that in X amount of time, everything will be okay. Like you mentioned that plan, it's mm. night and day difference, but it's thinking that this is forever that changes things. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also really useful to try to map heuristics onto different problems that you have in life. So for instance, if you if you've previously been through some sort of challenge or hardship which you didn't have a future blueprint for, uh, which as I previously stated can be extremely challenging because it's like playing a board game but you haven't read the rules yet. Uh, once you have overcome that, through as uh, developing a set of heuristics, trying to kind of map that onto future problems that you have as well, in that you don't exactly learn how to overcome the problem, but you learn the steps involved to learning what the rules are that help you overcome the problem. And so you, you end up sort of compartmentalizing your understanding of problem solving a whole lot better that way. Wow, have you ever written anything about that? I mean, that right there is a book in itself. Uh, I'm, I'm sure other people have written books that would be better than anything I would write on it. Uh, I am actually in the process of, of writing a book right now, but it's, it's more of a memoir kind of thing. Uh, something that I've been planning on uh, writing for many years and that took some time over, over the last few years to write. Um, but that's about it. When is that coming out? You think? No idea. Um, I haven't signed with a publisher yet, so, um, yeah, I don't know. I also don't really care. Like it could come out when it, it could come out next week or next yeah. year, or it's, it's not really a, um, it's more of a creative pursuit than anything else for me. I, I always admire people that just can bang out writing a book because it just requires so much focus in a world where we're just strung up by phone and distractions and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. Especially when you experience a disproportionate uh, amount of, <laughs> Um, disinterest from books, I guess. Like I, I, I'm almost certain nobody reads books. They just buy them for other people as gifts. <laughs> I can hear you on that. I listen to audios all day. That's why I love the podcasting format because it's basically like, hey, there's not enough people just having conversations these days. Podcasting That's forces right, yeah. two people, similar to a cigar, which is why I really like cigars because it's a commitment to your time, right? Like I'm going to- uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Like we're going to rock out for an hour. We're going to learn some shit. And then afterwards mm -hmm. it's like, uh, you just get to meet someone more than just this short term little interactions that we have through text, Facebook, you know what I mean? That's a great idea for a podcast. Maybe you could have a podcast where both participants need to light up the same length cigar and the podcast only ends when both of their cigars are finished. <laughs> there it is. Bro, I'm going to write that down <laughs> real quick. Yeah, it's called lung cancer. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you weren't supposed to inhale cigars. Is that, is that, have I got no, that wrong? Or? No, that was just a complete joke, but you're right. So you oh. shouldn't inhale cigars for sure. You shouldn't, but cigars for people that don't understand, cigars are purely tobacco. So cigarettes yeah. are full of chemicals and a million bad things, very commonly inhaled, not good. Cigars are pure tobacco. So if you're just letting the cigar go into your mouth, it's sort of like what I was reading is the effects that, you know, wine people do when they like wash their mouth out and they get a little taste of it. Right. You're just tasting right. it, you know? So it's mm. actually not as bad for your health as people that don't know that would have thought. Presumably to some extent still carcinogenic though, when combusted the tobacco, right? Or not? Uh, Yes, presumably to some extent, for sure. Uh, but so, so if you were if you were to sort of accidentally inhale, which I assume that you might accidentally inhale a bit. Well, from my understanding, it's tobacco. It's all tobacco leaves. So different tobaccos mm. are made of different strains of leaves, kind of just like uh, you know an ingredient in gin, right? You can take these yeah. leaves from the Andes Mountains to South America to you know, all these different forms, you wrap them together, you can create a cigar or you can get like a stray Cuban from certain areas. Uh, I've been really mm. fascinated about cigars and just their, their culture. Cause it's one of those things that hasn't changed much over the years. It's something that's been pretty standard. It hasn't been reinvented or, or done up that much. Yeah. Why do you, why do you think that is? I think it's a gentleman thing. It's like a thing dudes love to pride themselves in, right? Like we love, huh? a glass of whiskey and we love smoking mm. a cigar. It's the things that our forefathers and our parents might've done for years and years. It's deep in our soul of just manly shit, like cowboy stuff. I'm on a horse drinking whiskey, shooting stuff. Yeah, so it's, so it's a signaling thing rather than, you know, like it, it's, it's less about the convenience of the product and trying to improve upon that. And it's more of a, you know, this product is a signal. I think so. I think it's, mm. you know, because people have been smoking forever, right? Tobacco, cigarettes, mm. that's been, it's just a part of American society and the world society, right? So I, I think it's a cultural norm, but I think there's going to be changes. I mean, I guess in a sense, a jewel is a, you know, byproduct of, of maybe the starter plate, which was a cigar, which might've become a cigarette or vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, it, I mean, vaping uh, nicotine is definitely, you know, the next evolutionary uh, downstream um, sort of product from, uh, well, what would originally have been, um, I'm guessing like chewing tobacco, cigars, and then cigarettes, and then this, because it's all about the nicotine now. Yeah. It's all about the nicotine. There it is. I always, I always wonder myself, and it, it, this is kind of like not true in a way, but I've always really hated wine glasses. And I'm kind of on my own here because I think a lot of people like wine glasses for their signaling effect. I think, you know, you look much less like an alcoholic with a glass of wine in your hand than you do 
a gin and tonic or something like that, right? Or, or a glass of whiskey. But I think that the design of the wine glasses is, is fundamentally flawed because it's just, it's a ridiculously, I mean, if you approached an engineer and said, I want to design a glass that's extremely top heavy with a really fine stem, you know, such that it, it, the center of gravity, it, you know, when knocked accidentally could cascade the contents of the, of, the, of the receptacle to the person sitting across from you. They would design a wine glass. A martini glass is pretty much the same, right? They're almost impossible to handle. But why, why do we use these things? I think, you know, part of it is signaling and part of it is kind of network effects, right? It's just that everybody uses them. So it's like a path dependency uh, type thing. You know, the network effect also being that <clears throat> you never buy one wine glass, do you? You buy six or you buy 10 or, or, you know, they come in boxes. So if you have eight wine glasses in your house and you break one, you buy another box and then you've got all these spare wine glasses and eventually you just have wine glasses and wine glasses. You ne never get rid of these fucking things. And I'm trying to get rid of them in my house. There's a very good way to get rid of them is just don't care about whether they get broken. And wine glasses... If you don't take any care with wine glass and you're not drinking particularly good wine that you care if it gets smashed, just treat it like any other glass and eventually you'll have no wine glasses in your house. I guess the the devil edge there is just that wine stains so easy. <laughs> so if you break it, it's like hopefully you're 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 chilling on a countertop. <laughs> That's a very good point. That's a very good point. But I think you'll only have to do that six times and then eventually you'll have no wine glasses. I think but I, I kind of like they they have those uh, stemless wine glasses which I think is a much better idea. Uh, I, I can't really use them very well because they're very fine glass. And when I grab it with my hook, uh, it would, it would just crack it. it I, I, when you're saying that it reminded me of people that win a trophy, you know, how if someone wins the cup, it's this magnificent thing, mm. Stanley cup, whatever it is. And then everyone's pouring beer in it and you're drinking from it. And it's this sign of <laughs> victory but it's odd. It's abnormal. But technically, we're drinking a cup every time we drink wine. But that's yeah. normal. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, those trophies are kind of, they're fascinating in a completely different realm, such that they're visually obnoxious. And you like, if it weren't for competition, having one of those things in your house would signal to people that you have absolutely no taste. And yet when we when we sort of couple it with some sort of competitive element, all of a sudden there's something that we would put in our living room. Very true. I guess it's the whole idea of NFTs these days, right? It's a picture. Oh, yeah. Are you are you on that bandwagon? What's, I'm, what's going I'm, on there? I'm not, but I do find it pretty interesting. I really don't know much about it. I, I, I'm decently no, I know do I, yeah. And a little about crypto in general, but uh, and I believe in crypto, but I don't know much about mm. NFTs. But I do find it fascinating when someone drops like seven hundred and fifty thousand on this picture of like two dogs humping, and you're like, "Wow!" Like that's that's only going to increase yeah. in value. It's a picture, but it's got this mm. meaning behind it because there's a story, and I guess it goes back to stories. Stories sell products, right? You yeah, know? but also, um, you know, what we agree upon in society, I mean, you know, cash in and of itself is only worth something because we all agree that it is. True, which is the interesting concept besides Bitcoin is that it's kind of like a perfect finite cash, if you would. Uh, it doesn't get affected by inflation. Yeah. There's only so much. Yeah, and the, the more it, it, it is a useful currency, the more value or the more intrinsic value, I guess it will have. But I think uh, you know, the strange thing about cryptocurrencies and, and NFTs play into this as well, such that I can see from my 
admittedly feeble understanding of the technology is that the technology that underpins it, the blockchain technology, is far more revolutionary than the currency itself. And I think you might find the same thing with NFTs in that when it first comes out, our stupid brains are kind of like, well, how can I sell a photo of this dog? Um, but, you know, a few years down the track, you know, the, the unique identifiers will be used for something that's far more powerful and that we didn't anticipate. Right. So it's basically laying the blueprint for something that's someone's going to innovate on even farther and farther. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's just in the same way that blockchain is, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I always, there's only, uh, there's a certain type of people in this world that I hate. I don't hate many people, but I hate like one type of person and it's people that write really, really bad reviews. Right. Like they go. <laughs> I love that about you. That's great. You know, it's like, you, are you really going to cuss out this $9 product on Amazon? Give Ooh. it a one star that it's the worst thing ever when you spent $9 on it and you expected it to mm. film underwater. <laughs> it's like those people. I, I mean, I do. I do. I, I understand uh, the, the meaning behind why you hate that, but doesn't a small part of you really enjoy reading bad TripAdvisor reviews of restaurants? I don't know. I, I part of me wants to just vouch for the restaurant. It depends though. There's a difference between two reviews. Yeah. There's the comical, I know this is a shitty review, but I'm making it funny, mm. but at the same time shitting on you. And then there's just yeah. some douche sitting down who has nothing better to do in life than to gain mm. energy off of bringing this person down because their waiter right. looked at them funny or something, you know? So, so I, I would the the distinction that I would make with bad reviews would be, I would, I would find it distasteful if it was ill-lettered, if it, if it was written poorly, and there was just a lot of swearing in it, and and you could feel the anger coming from the person in, in a way that was unproductive or unpragmatic, then I would be with you on it. I think if I read a really clever review that was very scathing uh, but well written and funny. I would almost have the opposite effect. I would love it. I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm particularly yeah. talking about situations where uh, I, uh, I'm i on Wayfair, right? And I'm like looking at reviews of a bed. It's got like 4.7 out of five stars, like 700 reviews. And then there's like a one out of five and it's this dude's leg and there's like blood on it. And he's like, I cut myself walking by the bed. I didn't know it was this sharp. This is a horseshit product. <laughs> Do you, okay, be honest. Now, be honest right now. Do you do the thing when? Okay, when you buy a product or or a service, whatever it is, if you go to like an Airbnb and you go and you look at the reviews, right? Do you immediately go to the negative one? See, I always go to the negative ones because with the positive ones, I'm I don't I don't care. I want to know if there's a problem, right? And is there a common problem between if I if I stay at some apartment in some city and it's got you know, 94 positive reviews, six negative ones. I don't need to read the positive reviews because I, I know it's fine. I know. I want to read the negative ones and do five out of six of them say, well, the staircase is pretty fucked, which would be important information to me, but the positive one isn't, you know? In that scenario, you have a very good good thinking there because you live in and looking <laughs> at things differently. 
my thought process. Also, if you have it, also, sorry to interrupt, but if you have, if you read bad reviews of something and then you get there and it's a good experience, you've just manufactured a better experience for yourself because you've lowered your own expectations. Very true. If you still commit after knowing there's bad reviews. Yes. Right? Yes. So and you would like, only do that in the instance that you think that the bad reviews might be a little bit incorrect or right. that, or, you know, so, so, you know, it's not the perfect apartment to stay in because a few people have had problems with this place. Right. Keep in mind when you get there, it might not be five stars. All right. When you walk up those stairs, expect pandemonium. And then when you get in there, and it's a lovely living room and it's got great light and all the water faucets work and all that sort of shit. You're like, what the fuck were they talking about? This place is amazing. I'm going to be one of the 94 people that review it quite well. <laughs> I guess it all comes back to how they were raised, where they were born, what they, what they perceive as nice and not nice. I personally Definitely. am the type to want to review. I want to say, it's like this weird anxiety you get on Amazon. Do I take the 4.7 or the 4.6? This one has 500. This one has, <laughs> this one has 250. But the law of averages, uh, if this one had another 250, it'd probably get lowered to a 4.6. But then yeah. I ask myself, you have to really freaking like a product to actually go in after you got it and then take the time to actually go and write the review. Like you must have had like something special happen to you. <clears throat> so my thought process I think is, that, yeah. yeah. That's true, but yeah, that that all unless they're being coaxed into review, reviewing positively by being offered something, which you you never really know behind the scenes. What are your thoughts on um, that? Because I kind of I I low key respect it so much. Like if someone hits me up and I paid forty dollars for a product, like leave us a review and then we'll send you another this or we'll give you thirty dollars back. I'm like done. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. I mean, all, all you're really doing there is you know, the, the vendor is just kind of manufacturing their own good review through bribery. And that's what you can't really tell on the site. If you're a consumer, the interesting thing I think about, you know, the example that you deployed before about the Amazon thing, when you have two identical products with a very similar rating, um, I think there's a bias happening there. And I, I don't think it's what everyone thinks it is, right? Sure. Law of averages, more people are going to go for the better reviewed product. But I think more people will buy either product at all than they would if there was one version of that product with five stars. And that's because I think we as humans deem things in our own mind to be more important the more we spend time thinking about them. And so if there are two options between something for the same product, we would sit there and deliberate on, you know, as you just did, well, this is 4.8, this is 4.9, but if this had more reviews, it would be that. And, and you spend 10 minutes trying to work that out. What you don't realize is that you've sat there thinking about that product for 10 minutes, which makes it feel like more important in your own head. And you're more likely to buy the product at all than not at all. It's very true. So the amount so of- the, the lesson from that could be, if you're, if you're selling, uh, I don't know, camera lenses, and you, you sell one camera lens, make two stores and sell the same camera lens under two different brands. <laughs> so you've, you flood the market with more versions of that thing such that consumers think that it's a more important product and they buy it. That's that's Luxottica's business model. They own like, what, 90% of glasses in the world? Right. <laughs> Perfect, like, yeah. 
Yeah, we got the Ray-Ban, we got the Oakley. And if you really want to go all in, we got the gyms, though. The, the what gym? I don't know. I actually think, that. you know, it's interesting. I actually think that that the the fact that we have different versions of the uh, coronavirus vaccine actually helps more people get vaccinated. So we've had this thing in Australia. I'm not sure uh, to what extent it happened in the United States because I know that you guys are sort of flooded with mRNA vaccines, Moderna, Moderna Pfizer and the like. But over here, we had been given two types. One was AstraZeneca um, and the other was Pfizer. Pfizer being the mRNA vaccine that uses the lipid nanoparticle and, and AstraZeneca has a more traditional delivery method uh, as far as my limited understanding of it all goes. But the fact that there was a debate between which one you might have, I think encourages more people to get vaccinated at all than not at all. So because it changes the choice architecture in such a way that it's like when you walk into a restaurant and they say still or sparkling. It, it makes it very hard to say tap water, doesn't it? Well, I think that in humans, it's kind of like if your parents grew up and told you, you have to be a doctor. There's part of you is like, no, I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be this. There's a rebel in us and we want choice. We never want to be told what to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. In which you could, you could either, for, you could probably force your kid to become a doctor by saying you will never be able to become a doctor. There it is. I think that, I think that's what my the right age. Did. My parents did to my brother, I think, because he's, he's doing yeah. a thing. But going back to your point on right. the bribery, I think bribery is something to be admired. And this is why. Think about it. Back in the days when mm -hmm. I would go to uh, get my hair cut, I remember they would give me a lollipop when I left. And I was so looking yeah. forward to that lollipop when I left. And it made me so happy. I think that people that go beyond and above, they sell you the product and then they think outside the box to make your experience even more pleasurable, make you feel less bad about buying the product. It's interesting yeah. because it's well, like- see, what, what, you've, what you've done there though is, is okay, I, I think we're conflating two concepts here. One is providing value where you weren't, you didn't need to, right? right. So, so the lollipop after you get your hair cut is proof of long-term commitment from the hairdresser because they're saying, even though we've still got your money, we still care about keeping you happy. And therefore you'll come back. And you find this in a lot of businesses. And I think it's a really good practice because it's it's not your cut and shut. Like we, we sell things off Alibaba that get drop shipped and you're lucky if you get it in two weeks kind of business model, right? right. It's it's like, you know, we care about you. We're sending a follow-up thing. You've got a present that you didn't expect to receive along with your package, whatever it is. And that's providing value that you weren't uh, obliged to give. However, the other thing that I think we might be conflating it with is that when you use that to try and procure something from someone like, like, give me a positive review and I'm happy to send you this free stuff is more transactional. Yeah. If I received that message, I would say, oh, yeah, I'd probably do it, but I don't feel like the vendor is doing anything for me or cares about my business. I think he or she cares about his reviews. Yeah. And so psychologically, I think they're two different points to be conflated. It's interesting with uh, the ideology. Uh, and I, I read it in the Challenger book. It's like this hardcore sales book that anyone that's ever in enterprise mm. sales, like your, your sales manager has made you read that book. But they talked about this right. one concept. I forgot what it's called, but it's basically when someone gives you something, you now naturally feel indebted to them at some level. So there's yeah. like these groups yeah. of people that will go around giving you flowers and mm. expecting you to give something back. And they almost peer pressure mm. you into doing it. 
And then yeah, they'll literally, right, yeah. people will throw out the flowers. They'll go back, pick up those flowers out of the trash and then redo it. Right. And there was this mm-hmm. thing in psychology, yeah, yeah. right? Like, oh, I gave you something now scratch my back. I think that's yeah, it's building trust and yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a certain level of, I guess, <clears throat> like an intangible personal debt that you feel that you owe to somebody who gave you something for free. Right. And I think that's what the, in the, the uh, previous point relies upon is such that um, you do feel somewhat indebted to a person who gives you uh, a gift that they didn't need to give, but you know, more patently, I think it, it just, it's a signal in a way that, you know, we, that we care about your return business um, we genuinely want you to be happy. And then when you think of, you know, buying your next, you know, piece of crap for your living room, think of us. <laughs> Consumerism. Gotta love it. Yeah, but, but it keeps homies making hyperloops and going to space. So, you know, there's upsides. Yeah, that's true. Are you gonna are you gonna go to space? I think I'm just gonna do like the ride you know, at Disneyland where I can go in there and just float for, you know, 60 seconds and then Isn't that what it is? I, I thought it was, I, I thought that's what it was. Basically, you kind of go into the stratosphere, you experience uh, close to zero G, you look at the earth, take a photo on your Samsung and you go back down. 400, that, 400K, hell yeah. Yeah. But Oh, really? Yeah. I thought it was 250, what? 250, 400K, whatever it is, I can't afford it, but I will I remember, be able to. I remember Richard Branson's was 400, so I don't know if SpaceX right. beat, beat their price. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. But, I think, look, it's it needs to start at that price so as it can become attainable for us, you know, yeah. the surfs to do it I, <laughs> one I day. I think it's so cool. I, I'm all for I'm a big Elon Musk super fan, just all in mm-hmm. about it. Uh, I also did you find- see the robot that they made? Yeah, yeah the uh, the iRobot style uh, standing person that yeah. presumably Will-, <laughs> Will Smith had the best Instagram post of that. <laughs> it's just the oh, robot. Did he? I his- didn't see that. It's just the robot in his face, just looking at the robot from the movie that he was. <laughs> it's it's fantastic. I watched that movie really recently, like I- a couple of weeks ago. Great. Yeah, film. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. But I mean. Number one question, would you get the robot? That's a very good question. Um, and probably a unique question to ask someone like me because I have limited dexterity. And so I think something like that might end up being disproportionately useful to a person such as myself. Having said that, I, I've kind of worked out how to do most of the things that I need to do anyway. The, the weird thing about robots like that is I, I find, when I, when I thought about it and I looked at it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like it makes sense from a Elon Musk, SpaceX, let's do something to shock everyone, like sending a car into space angle, right? But functionally speaking, I never really envisaged robots to really look like that because it it didn't make sense to me functionally. I think to myself, like when you design a robot, you design it to do one specific task. Like the robot vacuum cleaner is a perfect example, right? Why would you design a humanoid style robot and then give it a Dyson, right? You, you, you design the robot vacuum cleaner and that is a singular robot that does that one job. Then you might have another robot that washes the dishes. We might call that a dishwasher. Then maybe you get a robot that packs the dishes or, or so on and so forth, right? And granted you have uh, several different types of robots, but that's kind of what we're living in now, right? So designing one robot that 
that operates like a human does until that robot gets to the point at which its its dexterity is identical, if not better, to ours than ours, I should say. Um, I I don't see it being as useful as a hundred different robots that do a hundred different things really well. I guess looking at that, I can see what you're saying, but is that from a perspective of kind of the fear, like the robot is now can overpower me. It's stronger than me. It's smarter than me. No, I don't, I don't think, I mean, there, that fear exists, but I don't, my point about that doesn't come from fear. I mean, if I fear anything, it's that fucking thing, but you know, Boston dynamics made that looks like that thing. Uh, <laughs> that black mirror fucker. No, you know, that, like it looks like a dog, but it has the two robotic legs and you can kick it over and it just stands right up again. I, that, I, that, that is terrifying. <laughs> just put an AK 47 on that motherfucker. And I'm just, yeah, I'll be like tinfoil hat living in the middle of nowhere. I mean, drones these days, it's crazy how war has changed. Drones, right? Perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that if you could just program that and get the coordinates or somehow and control that, I mean, I think that's what a lot of conspiracy theories go for, and that's how the end of the world happens, right? Someone gets the gets the code. Yeah, I, I mean, I saw a, a guy, I was watching some feature on like Al Jazeera or one of those channels that was uh, doing a mini documentary on this guy who was a tech billionaire uh, who left sort of the valley and um, and started his own weapons company or it was a defined loosely as a, as a defense company and what he does is he produces drone defense mechanisms and so it's you know anticipating that future wars will be fought with drones whether they be for surveillance or you know live ammunition or whatever it is and he makes these things that sit on the ground almost like landmines that shoot up and knock drones out of the sky and I mean, sure, brilliant, do it. But at the end of the day, you think to yourself, if we're fighting wars with drones in the future, like how fucked will we be? <laughs> Just yeah. ha- like measure it. How measure how fucked we will be? Yeah, like the grocery <laughs> store. The grocery store checkout is what kills us before the drones. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, it's all fun and games, you know, delivering Amazon with drones until <laughs> you know it goes all out war with them. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I think some people fantasize about it. I'm sure I do. I'm sure everyone does about you versus the drones, right? Mm. But but not until the drones beat you at your own game, you know. I could beat I could beat a drone a drone at chess at this point. That's about it. Wow, you're you're a big chess player. No, I just don't believe a drone would be very good at chess. I feel like that's what a drone would be exactly good at. Some quantitative. Well, I mean, if it game. had some sort of a. If it had some sort of AI in it, sure. But I mean, most of them are just delivering for Walgreens, aren't they? I think that I would assume most of them do have AI because like, wouldn't AI be needed to differentiate, you know? Yes, but they would have a GPS AI. I don't think they would have a chess playing AI. Gotcha. Here's what we've got to do. We've got to gotcha. design a drone that delivers your pharmaceuticals and then plays you at chess. And if you beat the drone at chess, you get to keep the package for free. That is that's some that's some Elon Musk branding right there. That's like I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna send some flamethrowers your way, and you're gonna be like, I'm down. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's a creative idea. I mean, I guess it's the old knack of hey, if you finish this entire pizza, you don't have to pay for it, but only three have done it, and two are in the hospital. 
Totally, yeah. And to honestly, like, it would be just a talking point because it, people would be on podcasts saying, hey, do you know that fucking company where you get to beat the drone in chess and you, you get your paracetamol for free? And eventually it promotes itself. You'd sell more paracetamol than anyone. That's so true. How can people <laughs> take that idea and apply it to their business, right? How can people think outside oh, the yeah. box and be creative? Yeah, lateral thinking. Uh, you know, lateral thinking in terms of marketing is more crucial today than it is um, you know, I think in any other time due to the ubiquity of, of digital marketing and all the horse shit that goes along, you know, with targeting and all this sort of crap that people get too focused on that and they don't get focused on human psychology as much and what interests people and what makes people talk about things and uh, different angles like that. Well, I think it's interesting, the whole argument of how uh, newer generations, mine included, haven't had to go through nearly as much adversity as older generations and thus uh, naturally yeah, we're softer and, and could be a little bit more prone to being upset because uh, life's just been very easy because of technology or we just have a different set of problems. Maybe we have increased depression and anxiety because we don't have um, more meaning in life because we're surrounded by all this fake stuff and, and or you get the world. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a pretty good summation. I, I, I tend to think that the increased anxiety and depression amongst Gen Y and below is probably largely limit, uh, sort of attributed rather to the proliferation of technology and the way that we interact with each other, you know, because a really big part of uh, maintaining sanity and, and happiness is social connections. And we've kind of distorted that in a way such that we interact with people very differently. Um, and, you know, to your point about, the adversity thing. Um, I mean, if you read uh, Jonathan Haidt with uh, his book, Coddling of the American Mind, it provides quite a bit of insight into younger generations and their fragility, I guess, with respect to having been helicoptered to a certain, certain extent. And I think that would play into it a little bit, but also just having completely different problems to people from the rest of the world puts you in a completely different mind frame and you view things in a particular context that makes some things feel really like end of the world and some things feel like they're not problems at all. And as soon as everybody starts doing that, you just get lumped in a larger group of people who attribute importance to one particular thing and then competition becomes rife in that, you know? Right. I mean, I believe that we as a society, we're, we're nomads and human connection is what drives a deep meaning in life. So depending on the wealth, the, the, the outside perspective, if you don't have that connection, days aren't as good. One thing I'm really big on is barbecues and, and just meetings, right? I think we need to do it more. So like this Saturday, I'm having mm. a, a big barbecue. I moved to Miami, you know, probably like a year ago, and I've just been trying to make as many friends as possible. So <coughs> my, my rule is if you come to my barbecue, you have to bring a friend. So mm. if I invite 20 people, I get 20 new friends or at least just give it a shot, right? That's a really good idea. I love that. And it's interesting because it's like, I, I love the concept of some people have said to me in the past that like, oh, well, Ian, you're so social. It's easy for you to make friends. And I see what they're saying because I am, I, I love my friends, but I think there's a lot to say that if you want to have good friends, you have to be a good friend, you know? 
Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think some people miss that and they expect just like, you know, the perfect spouse to come walking in the door be like, what's up, baby? Like, it just doesn't happen. You have to yeah. go out there and, and put in an effort to get, it's like the, the, I like to tell people I, I do enough where I can generate luck in my life. Right. I don't feel mm. like I do more and more than that, but I do enough where luck is possible, but I put myself yeah. in positions to get lucky and some good shit mm-hmm. happens. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Which is precisely what luck is. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. So it's like, I think the, the barbecue thing is a great idea. And I, I mean, I love your approach to it. The, the only thing I would say is that that putting in the effort to be the good friend is the crucial point there, because the more friends that you acquire, you begin to experience yield management problems. So, I mean, like I have friends that I consider quite close to me that I only really get to chat to once a month. And I'd love to chat to them more, but they're busy, I'm busy, or I have other friends or I'm doing other things. Um, And so you need to be able to give time to people. uh, And some people don't require time every week or every day. Some people require it once every three months or whatever it may be. And it, so it becomes like a mental calculation that you need to constantly keep on top of. And yeah, it's effort that you have to put in. But I think what you said about luck and, and opportunity is precisely where that lies, because the more people that you engage with, the more people that you know, luck happens upon you in the in the areas where you wouldn't be expecting it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that that thought process, but it's like putting yourself in a position to to meet great people is big. But as an adult, it's different. Like you grow up in this thing called middle school, grade school, university, where you see the same people every day. And like, that's what you're used yeah. to. But then as an adult, like, yeah, I'll see you later, bro. means really I'll see you in six months. <laughs> but I love those friendships yeah, yeah. where you pick right up where you left off. I, I love it because there's two types of things. Three years go by, we're different people, right? I'm different than I was three years ago. You're different than you were five years ago. It's like, we're different people. And I love seeing when I put like, pre-identified notions on people that maybe I met in high school, right? Because I was yeah. like insecure about myself. I was like, yeah, that guy was like a goth or a ghetto or like a weirdo or like whatever it was. And then you meet them like five, 10 years later. I'm like, yo, this guy's awesome. He's a homie. Like, I love mm. that. Seeing people grow yeah. and then seeing my own barriers about people go down because everyone has lived a life completely different than you have. Their experience mm. is so different, which is why people are so fascinating. Like we are a sum of our own experiences. You going through this hard, yeah. you going through this experience, waking up in a coma and being in a hospital for 18 months, that is quite an experience that very few people can say they've done. So when they look at your story and situation, they see it and they just gasp because it's it's a very rare experience. It is a rare experience and it's interesting, but I mean, I think, I think everybody has their own story and some people are better at telling it than others. And I think the reason is that some people don't believe that their story is that interesting, but you can find interest in almost anything. Trust me. I mean, like I, I've become a master at making seemingly, uh, well, no, sorry, master at making boring things sound seemingly interesting <laughs> just because of the way I would uh, tell the story or something like that. And some with some people, you, you've got to like whittle it out of them a little bit before they start giving you the full picture on things. But at the end of the day, this is, pardon me, this is one of the reasons why I don't understand people that really hate others based on their belief systems. 
I mean, there are people out there that I know of which I wholeheartedly disagree with everything that they believe in, but I don't hate them as individuals because I understand that if I were to trade cells with them, atom for atom, I would be them and I would think the same that they do because they're completely shaped by a combination of their genetic makeup, their environment and their experiences and the people that are around them. And so it's far more useful to try and investigate why a person has come out thinking the things that they do than just completely throwing them in the bin and saying that person's a fuckwit or whatever. And it's also interesting how, but the whole concept of hate, like if you hate someone, it hurts you. It doesn't hurt the other person, right? And mm, like your mm. idea of, of disloaning someone, it's like, Finding a way to to use that method you just mentioned to see it from their perspective, it's a superpower. And going back to superpowers, I think there's a few superpowers in this world. One is being able to meditate. I think it's a superpower. Like if you can do breath work and meditation, you are just equipped way better for life than most people. Number two, I, I agree with you. Yeah, and you can learn that. Like you can learn it, right? Number two is optimism. You are a optimist it pours over you. You have a way of making things fun. I think I'm like that too. Right. And generally speaking, like you find funniness in fucked up situations and oh, that, yeah. and that's why like comedians <laughs> almost, almost exclusively. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I mean, that's why comedians are so, uh, so fascinating to me because it's like, mm. some of them are on like the cutting edge of rea- like of, of truth. Right. There's some of the last people. That you have to have a, a remarkable insight to how things work to be a really good comedian. 100%. I think I think there's some of the smartest people that we encounter. Definitely. And they can hit it from mm. both sides. And you have to be you have to have a level of laughter with to make things fun. Right. Like if, yeah. if a topic's boring, that's because a teacher is boring. If you can make it fun, then all of a sudden it's interesting. Mm. And when it when it comes to topics of. Uh, that are difficult for us to deal with cognitively, humor becomes a tool and a mechanism as well for us to be able to have a release and deal with it because, you know, there's a lot of stress, mental stress that is involved with dealing with complicated or sometimes horrible issues. And your brain kind of needs a break from it at points. And I think, you know, when you're able to laugh at tragedy, like, I mean, I laugh at myself and what's happened to me all the time or something that I can or can't do um, because it's important that I don't take the whole thing too seriously. That's awesome. Because that's the, that's the basic of getting over hardship. And I appreciate you sharing that. There's one thing that I I ask everyone on the show. um, I'm really keen to to hear your answer uh, is, is just, if you could go back in time and you could have talked to, the 18 year old you, you know, before you went through adversity or, or before you were just doing that and where you're at now and where you're at then you could have told yourself maybe one, two or three things that, you know, maybe could have saved you a bunch of time, maybe money, heartache, headache, uh, anxiety, whatever. And it can't be, I wouldn't have told myself, I wouldn't have done anything because it made me who I am today. Cause that's just a lame answer, but it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> what are maybe some of those things that that current you would have told old you? Um, it's probably the kind of question. I mean, buy shares in Google, something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I honestly, um, I don't have a great answer for that. I, 
it's difficult because what you need to do in that situation is detach yourself from all of the experiences that have made you who you are and almost create a new butterfly effect. Um, but I think, you know, the most poignant aspect of that is that an 18-year-old me wouldn't have listened to myself, so it wouldn't matter what I would have said. The Butterfly Effect was such a good movie. I, I love that you mentioned that. Oh, I yeah. The there's, a, there's a guy that he, who gets hooks. Do you remember that part? It's the dude uh, who Ashton Kutcher plays. Um, one of the outcomes of his life is that he loses his arms and or for some reason he's in a fucking wheelchair inexplicably. But he has um, he has two prosthetic, I don't know if they're hooks or hands or something. I think they're hooks like this. <clears throat> but they do the really crap thing that they do in movies where they don't, it wasn't CGI, so they put the prosthetic arm on the end of his actual arm. So it's ridiculously long. What, where do you get like custom prosthetic? Like where do you go and get like a gangster hook? Cause their hook looks legit. These are, these are old school, right? These are, um, let me see if I can uh, give you some focus on that. I'm not sure whether it's, I think I've got, I think I've got my camera set to bit. manual focus. Yeah. Right yeah. there. I can see it great now. Yeah. So these, these hooks um, were designed about a hundred years ago for people who lost their arms during world war one. And as a result, they actually have a hole. If you can see that hole there. Yeah. Right here. Mm -hmm. That's for cigarettes. <laughs> which served me well for quite a while. Um, but yeah, they're the old school ones and you can get the hand attachment, which I don't really like for a couple of reasons. One, it's not very functional. Um, they're, they're quite cumbersome and they don't have, you can't uh, pick up with a lot of fine motor skills or anything like that. Secondly, hand, like who are you trying to fool? It doesn't look, it doesn't look like a real, you know, even if you were, I don't know, it's, it's like a, a crap push-up bra or something. Um, so I don't like it. Um, and I, th I thought the hooks looked pretty badass um, anyway. And I can get really, I can find motor skills with them. I can pick up a, a little piece of ash or um, very small, fine objects. I can pick up some things that you can't pick up with fingers because fingers are too cumbersome. Um, and notwithstanding, I can't do everything. I can't play piano and things like that. Well, not very well. Um, but they just serve me the best and I really like the way they look. And unfortunately now I'm kind of locked into them, right? Because they've become part of my identity. <laughs> like they are, who, like, I mean, if, if, if some new technology came out that was fantastic and useful, I don't think I'd get it anyway, because I just, <laughs> this is what I look like now and I can't change yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. You'll be like a part. Yeah. This is you. This is the new you. You, you, this it's is me. The, this is the you that, that is, is everything who you are. My and friends and family would just be like, you can't change your hands. You wait, fuck with. That's like, you're already like that. Don't do it. When you did that amazing Ted talk and you're planning for that, what was, what went through your mind before you did that? And, and were you nervous or what was that experience like? Um, I'm really lucky in that I never or very rarely get nervous in front of crowds. Um, so I wasn't particularly nervous, but the process of actually, um, of doing the Ted talk was interesting because it wasn't like any public speaking that I'd done in the past. Usually when I talk, uh, and speak at events or functions, I speak extemporaneously much like I'm speaking with you now. 
uh, very off the cuff. There's no method to it. And TED is very different. It's very uh, sort of script driven and you have to pause in between sentences like you're fucking Obama. You know, like you really have to polish the thing well and have proper story arcs and all this sort of stuff. And so uh, working with their team and like I'd write the script and then they would help me and say like, you know, maybe this bit would be better placed there or, um, you know, hit that point harder or whatever it is. And actually collaborating with a couple of girls that that ran um, TEDx Sydney was hugely helpful to me, even though I don't do those types of talks very often. Um, it helped me understand what it was like to do that and really consolidate ideas and deploy them in a very sort of uh, succinct fashion, I guess. This is cool. It's cool when you have people that can help you with that. I mean, you did a great job. Yeah. It was impactful. And um, to Thanks. this day, you're, 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 you're out here, you're DJ. We didn't even speak about DJing, but I know we got to wrap this up. Oh yeah. But, but bro, you're, you're living life, man. You're out here, you're partying, you're having a good time. And this, this, talking with you has been a joy. I, I know uh, I have one friend out in Australia. We met through like having gut issues. Her name's Christine, shout mm. out. Um, and she was telling me shit was crazy in Australia right now with, with COVID and everything. Um, but hopefully one yeah, day- Yeah, we've had a, yeah, we're in lock. Is she in Sydney? I don't know. I have to remember. I I, I should know that, but I don't. I so think- we're, we're in, yeah, I mean, in Sydney and we're, we've been in lockdown for about 11 weeks now. And that's this thing where they'll uh, literally take you out of your home and like put you into a hotel type deal. Oh no, that that's for returned overseas passengers. You do a two week hotel quarantine. She was saying that people are literally like now not for returned. If you just had it at one point, you would be, have to go to a hotel which is which just sounds right crazy. okay i mean i i haven't heard about that maybe that's happening um so that's fake news everyone i apologize but that's what she was telling me <laughs> i'm not sure that it's fake to be honest i haven't i haven't heard about it but um well there's some people that i, I saw on the news that uh the whole household had had covid and they were told to isolate in their household and the reason they were on the news was because they were sitting on their balcony having a barbecue um, and the cops were trying to tell them to go back inside. So I know that there are some people that if they test positive, they can remain at home and isolate, but maybe there's special circumstances for those people who live with others or something. Well, Tom, I appreciate you, man. How can the people follow the journey? How can people follow you on the gram? Uh, where would you like to send people to? Uh, anywhere they like. I mean, yeah, you can follow my Instagram. It's just DJ hookie, DJ H double O K I E or, um, just Google Tom Nash. I think it's only between me and some guy from America that offers financial advice that might be spurious. <laughs> I saw that guy too. Cause I looked up Tom Nash. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He does like, he's like a pretty big YouTuber. <laughs> yeah. I think he is. Yeah. He's pretty good. All right, man. I love it. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to staying in touch and I hopefully we can run this back again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks very much for the invitation. Thank you for listening to another episode. Remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time, peace.